0: Hi, I'm Mary Trump and I'm here to let you know that my weekly podcast, The Mary Trump Show, is now a weekly live stream on YouTube. Every week I'm joined by some of my favorite people at the intersection of politics, activism and culture. And so far my guests have included Ellie Mistal, David K. Johnston, Martina Navratilova, E. Jean Carroll, Fiona Hill and Malcolm Nance, among other amazing guests. Together we're taking on current events and the many challenges our country is facing. So subscribe to YouTube.com Politicon to join us every week on Thursdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. That's YouTube.com slash Politicon for The Mary Trump Show, live. Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Nick Schifrin, who is the chief defense and foreign affairs correspondent at PBS NewsHour, and he's done important work in an acclaimed series on what it's like inside Putin's Russia, and he just returned a week or so ago from several weeks in Ukraine. Uh, Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, the Democracy in Danger podcast, Raycon, and Blinkist in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, welcome, Nick Nick Schifrin. James and I are big fans of the NewsHour and your work, especially the great reporting that you did in several weeks in War Ravaged Ukraine. We want to get to talking about those experiences. But first, Nick, let me just ask you, is it possible that Ukraine could actually win this war, push the aggressive Russians back? It's a good question, Al. But the question is, what is when?
1: So, you know, we, the U.S., London especially, helped create – uh this expectation of what russia wanted because we talked about what we believed uh we stole accurately from from the russian military plans that was essentially a, a plan for regime change to to sack to siege kyiv uh and to throw out the zelensky government and replace it with some kind of you know, pliant puppet or, or, or create a rump state. Um, so if that is what the Putin threshold is, or if that's what the Kremlin threshold is, then yeah, I think there's absolutely ways, and we're seeing it on the ground, that Ukraine can prevent that. Uh, one, Russian tactical mistakes, a, a lack of food, a lack of gas, a, a lack of, frankly, plans of communication for how some of its troops were, were going to proceed and maneuver toward Kyiv. And maneuver toward other cities, uh, but also uh, an extraordinary resistance, almost like a guerrilla resistance, uh, of individual units fighting in very small numbers, uh, kind of around the side of the russian lines in the forest using american and nato weapons to to take out uh russian vehicles russian tanks uh, and what we've seen that happen is that means that the the tank the columns that the russians are using they're immobilized uh and so it's actually very effective simply it's stopping them in their tracks literally but if the russian goal instead is to Uh, I don't know, you know, seize southern Ukraine, cut Kiev off from the coast, uh, encircle Kiev so that Kiev uh, gives up on NATO, uh, seize more territory in the east, I think the Ukrainians are going to have a hard
0: time preventing that. You know, let me go back to what you just described, that incredibly effective guerrilla warfare. You, You reported on the extraordinary courage and resolve that you saw from so many Ukrainians over there, the military units to be sure, but just ordinary citizens. Describe that. Um, It is as if your
1: very existence and your home are threatened. Your family's future is threatened. Um, And a a bigger country, a David compared to Goliath, if you will, uh, as the Lviv mayor compared it. If Goliath is coming in and saying you have no right to exist as a nationality, I think Al we can completely understand that, that anybody whose family, whose house, whose whose very uh identity is threatened, you're you're gonna fight to the last man. And so the Ukrainians have done that. Uh and 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 they've done that using some of the tactics and techniques Uh, and procedures that they've learned in the last eight years of war. Remember, they've been fighting the Russians or or Russian-backed separatists in the East since 2014. Uh, And so the U.S. and, and the U.K. have been training them a lot on some of these tactics. Uh, but it is an existential war, and that's why every single Ukrainian is, is, is fighting, is willing to fight to the death. And that leads to some of the more heartbreaking scenes that I've ever witnessed. I mean, I've covered half a dozen wars and conflicts, but I've never seen the kind of conflict that we're seeing today like we saw in Europe in 1940, which was that the men say goodbye to their children uh, and, and to their wives, and sometimes grandma and grandpa who can leave. And, and they leave them at the border and they turn around to fight uh, and volunteer. And, and so that's what we're seeing. Um, in addition to, like we talked about, some of those weapons that have proved very effective that the U.S. and, and the West has given them.
0: One of your reports from there, uh, you you drove, I think, uh, 500 miles from Odessa to near the Polish border, took over 20 hours, and you saw much of what is happening and the effort to escape in that harrowing journey, that must have been uh, an extraordinary experience.
1: What's well, also what's extraordinary about it is is you know at times we're stopped in traffic right so we joined um, basically if you draw a line from Odessa which is on the Black Sea which is uh, the main port one of the main ports that Ukraine has if you draw a line due north you hit Kiev so in the middle there is kind of the main artery you know the 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 I forty if you will of Ukraine uh, and so you get to I forty or equivalent of it you make a left and that goes to Poland and so that means that everyone from the east from Kharkiv from from uh, Mariupol, from these these cities that we now all know uh, their names, uh, all of those people leaving, they're also on I forty, and so traffic is just backed up. I think the first day of the war, the line at the Polish border was forty miles long. I mean, it was literally a four day line. So now that's you know that's kind of cleared out a little bit, but but in the middle of the country, there's still back to back traffic. So you get into this line, and you just sit there, and so we 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 took a walk and we took walked down the line. And what's extraordinary is a couple things. One, in almost every car, there's there's eight people uh, with children. We talked about because the men can't leave. Every car has a sign in the back that says Dita, which is the word uh, in, in Russian for, for child or for children, meaning children on board, don't shoot us. Um, At every single car, you just start asking questions. And these people need to talk. They want to talk because... Other people, frankly, aren't asking because they're also fleeing. And the stories they tell are just harrowing. You know, um, the only reason that a parent will risk a gauntlet of Russian troops to leave their house is because their home is no longer safe. The only reason a parent would put a child on a boat is because the land isn't safe. You know, those... Those ideas that we've heard from poets and authors the last few years of refugee crises were playing out every day in every
0: car on that road, on that highway,
1: uh, every single one hoping for safety, uh, knowing that that the war is coming for them.
0: Uh, you mentioned Maripol uh, a moment ago. Uh, the Russians are bombing hospitals, children's centers, targeting civilians. Uh, you wrote about workers digging through the night to pull survivors out of the rubble after airstrikes. And I, I, I think you wrote the other day that the story of Maripol is the story of this war.
1: It is because the Russians are not able to perform what they wanted to perform. They weren't able to do shock and awe. They weren't able to to seize Kiev in some overnight Capture using a, a nearby airport. Um, and so they sit back and they lob artillery at residential neighborhoods. So they launch their missiles from inside Russia at apartment complexes. It is indiscriminate shelling into uh, apartment blocks, into residential neighborhoods. And it is also very discriminate shelling at civilian targets. So they have destroyed a city that was 400,000 people. I mean, there's very little of it left. And not only did they destroy it, but they looked for the very place where women and children were sheltering, a theater. There were 1,000 people in the basement. Another location a couple days ago, 400 people. Direct hits on those targets. And so we will unfortunately be writing histories where if the first chapter is Stalingrad or Guernica and the next chapter is Stalingrad and the next chapter is Aleppo, unfortunately, the chapter after that may be Mariupol. And, and that is what the Russians are willing to do. James.
2: So how, how are the Ukrainian supplies holding up? Is the West able to get them supplies? And will we have to consider something like the Berlin airlift at some point to get to, to because they got to be, they can fight, but you can't fight without ammunition. You can't fight without food. You can't fight without, you know, all the other things we do. So tell us a little bit about the supply lines, and and the Russians have to know that they, they if we can't take Kiev, we'll we'll, we'll have a siege, you know, see Leningrad. Absolutely. It's a great question, James, because,
1: um, you know, and, and and I will say what I know about this is obviously through U.S. and Ukrainian and NATO officials. And frankly, everybody has a reason to not tell me the truth about this right. very question. So, you know, let's take what we know with a grain of salt. But we know a couple of things. One, the Russians have promised to target those supply lines. Uh, and two, what the U.S. is saying is that they have had no problem getting it in. So let's take just the latest tranche of what Biden announced, a thousand javelins, right? I mean, a thousand individual packages of weapons that can take out a a Russian vehicle, in addition to 400 stingers, which are even a little larger. You know, these are trucks and trucks and trucks and trucks full. There's no airlift because there's nothing flying into Ukraine. So it's all going overland, we believe, through Poland, uh, and we believe it's getting there. Um again, you know, the Ukrainians, the Americans would have incentive not to tell us if the Russians suddenly hit it. But at the very least, we see the Ukrainian military using this stuff. And so far as we can tell, uh it's getting in, it's been used effectively, um, and there is no end in sight to how much the Americans and the West and NATO are willing to provide. They see the success that Ukraine is having with them. They want Russia to bleed. Ukraines are, are are like it's almost like a proxy fight, right? They're they're fighting the Russians and they're using American NATO weapons extremely effectively. And and NATO and the US want to keep that flow going.
2: So, well, we now know that the blacks, Russian Black Sea fleet is shelling the, these coastal areas. We do have short ship missiles, like we have, you know. Land of air missile or something like that. It, it, do you heard? Have you heard of any, any idea that we should get? some of these things to Ukraine, because the Russians have, have traditionally and still do have a really crappy Navy.
1: <laughs> well, so what's, what's interesting about that is that actually we're seeing that the Russian army may actually be weaker than we thought. Um, and, and the Russian the Navy- close contest. Yeah, exactly. The Russian Navy actually has come a, a bit of a long way in the last 10 years, and we don't know yet for sure, but our assumptions about the Russian army were not quite right. Um, but there is an assumption the Russian Navy actually and the Marines that are still on those ships in the Black Sea that could come ashore still uh, near Odessa um, are, are still there and are still, at least so we think, well-trained. Um, the Ukrainians are, were asking for uh, shore-to-ship uh, uh, weapons um, to place uh, along the Black Sea and the Azov Sea coast, which is the other coast that they have in the southeast. To my knowledge, we never gave them to them, um, because that was deemed an offensive weapon, quote unquote. Uh, Someone will have to define the difference between a defensive and offensive weapon to me one day, but meaning that you could take a weapon and shoot over a border, or you could take a weapon and shoot much further than uh, a weapon where if you're looking at a tank, clearly an invader, clearly right there, that's a, quote, defensive weapon. So as far as I know, um, the the Americans never provided those. The Ukrainians have some of their own, uh, we mm-hmm. have not
2: seen them use them as as far as we can tell well every navy looks pretty good till it get shot at so we'll <laughs> we'll see we'll, we'll see where it goes from here how well, i mean we got to know that there's nothing more than Putin and the Russians would want would be to capture zelensky and of course the ukrainians know that and zelensky knows that just a, just says how safe is zelensky i mean is he pretty well protected is he moving around you know what What's going on there? Because he is the biggest target of the 21st century, maybe bigger than Bin Laden.
1: He he is presumably Russia's number one target, although – we haven't we we've seen some reporting but not a lot on on actual attempts at his life in part frankly because russia hasn't seized kiev or, or hasn't really even surrounded kiev so uh, i have no doubt that i'm sure there are there's some saboteurs out there as the ukrainians call them who would love to to take that shot he is very well protected he does move around though um and so what i think we've seen from his team uh, and remember you know he's an actor he's a comedian he's more than that he's He's a real institution when it comes to entertainment. By the way, in Russian, he was never a Ukrainian language uh, entertainer. He was always a Russian language entertainer who was popular in Russia. But what they've done is they've taken their skills and his skills um, uh, in presentation, in in rhetoric, um, and and mo- to to quote the the line about Churchill, they've mobilized the Ukrainian language for battle. And so, so I'll turn it back. Uh, and, and and so they've they've shown him. In his office, all with, all with, like, with you know, facing the windows, lots of glass, doing a selfie. They've they've shown him walking through the streets of Kiev. Fine, it's around the presidential uh, uh, office, but still on on the streets of Kiev. And he has tried to mobilize the idea that this is a black and white war, a good and evil war, using those skills he's had. And, and he has not hidden more than at least you know we've seen him hide a little bit.
2: So I'll try right back to Al just make a point. I talked to a close friend of Al Franken's, and I said, tell tell Al he needs to run for election again, because Zelensky's made it cool to be a Jewish comedian. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And 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 just to that point, you know, the the rhetoric
1: from Zelensky, right? To American audience, not I have a dream, I have a need, right? To the German audience. You know, Mr. Scholz, tear down this wall between democracy and authoritarianism to the Japanese audience. There is a tsunami hitting my country today. They have done an extraordinary job at getting, especially Europe, to a point where they can make political decisions that Europeans thought impossible a month ago. Uh, and they've used his skills at that. And, you know, again, it goes without saying, but it can't say it enough. The notion of denazifying a country with a Jewish president
0: yeah, it's incredible. Nick, let me go back uh, a moment to something. Uh, several former NATO commanders in the last couple of days have called not for a free fly zone, but a humanitarian zone with protections. Now, that would have risk too. Uh, the Russians may not li- like that much. But when I hear former NATO commanders, I think three of them say, that's what we're going to have to do. It's just a matter of when. Uh, what's your reporting suggest?
1: There's not really a, a no-fly zones, a no-fly zones, a no-fly zone. Right. It is really not easy. Um, it requires um, American, presumably, and some European jets over the skies of Ukraine uh, with authority to kill. Right? You, can't, you can't enforce a no-fly zone unless you are willing to push the button on the side of that jet and destroy a Russian jet.
0: Uh, and How would a humanitarian zone be different then?
1: Uh, I'm not, to me, I, I don't see a, a lot of, uh, evidence that it would be. There are people on the ground who are trying to figure out a way to get what the Ukrainians call green corridors. So literally corridors out of places like Kharkiv and Mariupol, um, and even Odessa, uh, through Mikolaev. Um, and, and the Ukrainians call them green corridors, we would call them kind of safe corridors or safe passages. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are individually negotiated between Ukrainian authorities, Russian authorities. The ICRC head uh, has, has been in Ukraine, is today is in Moscow. He's in the middle of some of those negotiations. The UN has also been in those. So if if that's what we're talking about, that's already happening. But what, from what I've read about these proposals, they still require a level of protection from the sky, uh, and it's just not going to to happen. The, the U.S. And, and NATO have just said it's, they're not willing. What instead they're trying to do <coughs> excuse me, is, um, is get a kind of de facto no-fly zone, and that would be sending what NATO calls SA-8s, um, S-300s that we know. These are air defense systems that could shoot down Russian jets, Um, not really Russian ballistic missiles, maybe some Russian cruise missiles. Uh, That's a kind of de facto no-fly zone. And and the U.S. is clearly working with uh, allies and uh, some of the Eastern Bloc countries that have those weapons.
0: Nick, you also have a lot of expertise on Russia. You did a documentary. What's the best explanation of why Putin so badly, so clearly miscalculated? Hmm. Um,
1: I think I will quote um, Masha Gessen, uh who who I'm sure you guys know and, and many of the uh, listeners know, <coughs> a, a well-known Russian activist and, and advocate. Uh, and 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 Masha talks about this idea that that the Kremlin is no longer a government, that Putin has created, uh, an oligarchy is is the words of of some other experts. I think her her words are essentially uh, a kind of mafia, in which there's a captain, uh, that is Putin, and he has lieutenants. And what happens when you create a government like that, uh, in that's kind of based on violence and, and money? Um, everybody gets a share, and everybody's participating in the violence. Is that? Um, the the captain will kind of lead a meeting and say, you know, geez, it's like Shakespearean. Wouldn't it be great if this Zelensky guy wasn't our problem anymore? You know, if he was really just gone. You know what? I got to go to the bathroom. I, I got to go. Discuss amongst yourselves, right? What Masha calls emanations from the leader. And I think what has happened, according to the better Russia watchers that I talked to, is that he's no longer getting the advice uh, of, of, a head of government. He is caught in his own feedback loop. Um, and we saw these extraordinary scenes the day of, or the day before the invasion, where he uh, recognized the, quote, independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, the <clears throat> the breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine. And he dressed down the head of his foreign intelligence service. And, and the guy got up and he was stammering and Putin's like, speak clearly. And he's just, badgering him disparaging him I mean, he's the guy's clearly nervous clearly trying to suggest hey maybe this isn't such a good idea boss and and putin wanted none of it so i, I think that's the best guess frankly it is a guess that people have <coughs> he's just no longer getting normal government advice he's getting what he what what he, what his people think he wants to hear
0: well he's a cornered rat now as he once wrote about so what does a cornered rat do in that situation
1: well, I will. I will not uh, repeat the characterization. Obviously, um, but what U.S. <laughs> officials are worried about is that uh, I think the president's words were, uh, you know, he's up against a wall or something like that. Uh, they're worried that a a, a more desperate <clears throat> leader will one resort to some of the scorched earth tactics that we've already talked about: uh, artillery into residential blocks, uh, missiles into residential blocks. But the the great fear is non-conventional weapons. So most obviously chemical and biological. And I say most obviously for two reasons. One, uh, Putin and his allies in the Syrian government have been willing <laughs> to use chemical weapons in the past. So they've used them in Syria, uh, as we've seen so horrifically. Uh, and also Russian state uh, intelligence cutouts have used uh, chemical weapons in the UK- United Kingdom to target what the Kremlin perceived as as one of its enemies. So that's there. And two, the Russians are talking about the American biological labs, which is a lie, in Ukraine. Uh, Russia, uh, American chemical weapons in Ukraine. So that false flag is is a real red flag, if you will, uh, or a real red warning light. That maybe they're thinking of it, and the bigger threat is nuclear, of course. Um, and f- the people I talk to say there's no intelligence to base to, to to there's no intelligence that suggests any kind of imminent nuclear attack. And when I say nuclear, we're not talking about the strategic, big kind of city. Destroyers. The Russians uh, have what they call tactical nuclear weapons or battlefield nuclear weapons. It's still a nuke, but um, and and the problem there is that Gorosimov, their equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has written extensively over the years that it is Russian doctrine to escalate using tactical nuclear weapons. What we call escalate to de-escalate, they don't use that phrase, but that's effectively what it is. Um, they've talked about it in the past, and so that that is the fear.
2: If uh, if President Putin feels somehow cornered, James. So b- b- let's assume he is quote tactical nuclear weapons. A, a friend of ours, who's pretty knowledgeable, said that's a little. It's like a chain of command. That he could face some resistance, but so he does that, and the wind blows the wrong way, and he goes. It goes over Poland. All right. Does that does that activate Article Five? It's a fantastic I, I
1: mean just think. it's a great question and we asked Jack Reed the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee exactly that and he said something interesting this oh, morning Oh man <laughs> he said something interesting this morning which I hadn't heard and and I you know uh, I, I don't think chairman Reed <coughs> is necessarily reflecting 100% what the administration's thinking but clearly as the Democratic chairman of, of the Armed Services Committee he's going to know what's going on he said in a hypothetical scenario where there's a non-conventional use and radiation were to cross the border. And by the way, that's like totally possible. It, you know, like the wind literally just needs to yeah. be blowing west. It's not even the wrong it's yeah, yeah. West. yeah. He said he could foresee a scenario where NATO claims an attack on NATO. Even though the weapon was aimed and exploded inside Ukraine, he could see the possibility... Of the president of the United States, Secretary General of NATO, and the NAC, the National, uh, the the, um, NATO, uh, the Na- uh, NATO Atlantic Council, the military, the political body that that uh, makes decisions for NATO, saying yes, Article Five, because of a radiation leak or because of chemicals floating over into Poland or another NATO country. So I know they're thinking about it. Um, they're worried about it. I'm not quite convinced that they've really come to terms with, with uh, that scenario and what they would do, but they're definitely talking about it, and obviously the president's in Brussels tomorrow uh, to, to talk about that, among other things.
2: So I'm turning back to Al. Never, you know, and I know this is speculation, and I'm, just, I'm asking you to speculate. I know journalists hate to speculate because it's not what you're trained to do. But if you had to give a best guess, how do you think this this ends? Well, what, what
1: was it that Yogi Berra said? Uh, you know, prediction is hard, especially about the future. Yes.
2: Right. Um. right. Right.
1: Right. But,
2: <laughs> but I understand. <laughs> it's déjà vu. All over everybody, again. but everybody is asking that question. I mean, pe- people ask me. I, you know, but, you know. It has to have. It's 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 become. You know, doctrine that he has to have a exit. He's got, Henry Kissinger says you got to figure a way to, you know, that he can save face. And right. Whatever. That that's become part of the the conversation. Yeah. What, what 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 is what's the
1: exit ramp? Is still a great question. And unfortunately, uh, and and I know this for sure, the very top of the U.S. government does not see an exit ramp, unfortunately, um, because. One, as we talked about, the West defined Putin's plan so early and so publicly as regime change, and, and Putin has suggested it. So if that's victory, geez, you're a long way from that. Uh, and, and Putin does need to achieve victory uh, for his own standing in the world. Um, but what I think we're going to see, and, and this is more about, less about speculation and more based on what we're seeing already – the Russians can do what they are doing in Ukraine right now. And, and like we've said, that's missiles, a lot of dumb bombs, so to speak, a lot of artillery raining on, on residential neighborhoods. They can do that for a long time. They may not be able to seize Kiev. They may not be able to seize Odessa. We don't know yet. But um, they can certainly stay where they are for many, many, many months. And um, it will be a test between the Ukrainian military – and an army of volunteers who are fighting, uh, and and their Western weapons, with the political uh, willingness of the Kremlin to keep going. Uh, I don't see the Russian military really changing because they're just going to doing what they're doing. But it is the Kremlin versus the Ukrainian military who will play this out. And, and assuming there's no kind of quick uh, armistice that where, where Ukraine agrees to something that Russia's willing to accept. Uh, We will see this for months and months and months. We will see the civilian toll just increase, um, and we will see a slow war of attrition. The attrition will be both of the Ukrainian military and the Kremlin's willingness to accept pain. If we see body bags uh, of Russian conscripts going back to Russia, I assure you there will be political pressure on Putin. If we don't see those body bags, maybe less pressure. We are going to see a lot of pressure on the Ukrainian military, uh, but the U.S. will continue to give them weapons. So that's, I think, the contest that's going to play out. But unfortunately, it's going to play out over many months, uh, it seems, um, at great cost to the people of Ukraine, to the country of Ukraine. Um, but they are, they are trying to stand firm and, and, and save their country. But there's not very much that they can do to evict Russia. Um, all they'll be able to do is stall it.
0: Well, that's a, uh, a that's a realistically uh, if bleak right. uh, assessment. Nick, uh, your reporting has been terrific. Uh, you and now your colleague Jane Ferguson over there, and I understand one or two other um, uh, half decent journalists at the News Hour. Uh, so we thank you for joining us, and, and all of you out there, uh, watch Nick Schifrin. You know, Nick. Before we go, we just got some very sad news. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, uh, a person, a great champion of democracy, uh, with through Eastern European roots. She has just passed away. Uh, She really was a a giant of the American foreign policy establishment, wasn't she?
1: She was a giant of the American foreign policy establishment, a giant of of America. Um, You know, uh, what what we stand for or what so much of America stands for, the ability of someone like her and her family to escape what they did and for her to reach the highest pinnacle of American diplomacy when she did. Uh, Someone who was not afraid to use force, We've been talking about war, uh, famously told uh, Colin Powell, you know, well, if you got such a shiny military, why aren't you willing to use it in, in the Balkans to save people? Uh, a champion of human rights across the world, uh, uh, both obviously behind the Iron Curtain and when she was younger and America standing as a beacon uh, and someone who I know is, uh, was uh, a real role model for so many diplomats and senior officials in this U.S. government
2: today. And, and and young men. And young women also. James you knew her yeah i mean i, I, I do her not well but better than how you're doing madam secretary and, and what a what a what an elegant person you, you know and what personal the combination of personal and and professional accomplishments and you know her book was uh would was unbelievable. I mean, people like that that made the United States. Mm. And I, she is a. Um, it, it's a very distressing thing to hear. And, and she was a very. Uh, she, she was very nice. She was very approachable. I mean, she didn't have a, a, a whiff of arrogance about her. So I, I'm, I'm, I am saddened by this. And you know, it doesn't look like we got a lot of rep- a lot of people on the bench <laughs> to replace her right now, which is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, me. it is. And uh, you know, my wife and I periodically would have dinner with Madeline and two things you always learn something she always had some insights and she was fun she wasn't a stiff she really really was fun so uh, she had an extraordinary life as Nick said with uh, from her early roots and at an early age in Washington her husband left her and she had two little kids and her achievements are just uh the stuff of legacy Mm. so Madeline Albright
2: we miss you absolutely yeah we sure do
0: Hey, James, I watched uh, almost all the first three days or at least two and a half days of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on Supreme Court nominee uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson. First, never having seen her before, this is a really impressive jurist. Uh, She's gonna add, Real value to that high court. She was calm. She was cool. She was smart. She was versed. She knew exactly how to handle uh, those senators. But the other thing is the Republican behavior, with few exceptions, was vile and demagogic. Lindsey Graham started off by saying, "You know, we're gonna not gonna treat you the way Brett Kavanaugh is gonna treat. You. We'll treat you with dignity and fairness." Republicans then. Proceeded to describe her as a criminal, coddling, child porn, sympathizing, drug dealing, supporting, black nationalist radical. All totally false. Fact checkers have noted that. Graham who I always think of, James, and as Chris Buckley described him as Squiggly tea Biscuit, he attacked her for representing terrorists. She was a public defender on Guantanamo. It's what we do in this country. Everybody deserves representation. He also erroneously tried to link her, uh, or support for her, to the left-wing activists and the favorite right-wing target, Jewish billionaire and philanthropist George Soros, who he falsely claimed sabotaged his home state, Candidate, Judge Childs. Now, let me say something, James, and you and I know this. Our dear friend Walter Dellinger, who passed away five weeks ago, about a week before um, Judge Jackson was nominated, was deeply involved in the process. He talked with the president and others, and he condemned a few left-wing groups' criticism of Judge Childs, who's from South Carolina. But he said that had nothing, nothing to do with a choice. He thought Judge Jackson would be chosen because of the breadth of her experience and her gravitas. And I would just finally say that Biscuit, who used to bring some Southern charm to these proceedings when John Kane was his mentor, uh, his political daddy, since he switched to Trump, he's just an angry,
2: spiteful bully. I, I'd watched a single second of it. And I'll tell you why. I knew exactly what was going to happen. There is not a single surprising thing. And am I surprised that they plunge the depth that they have on this, of course not. It's what they do. But don't worry, we lost Madeline Albright, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but, but we we got Josh Howley and, and Ted Cruz coming up to replace them. I mean, that's what that's what's the disgusting thing. But I I, I don't you know I I read about it, I look at a couple of clips, and I get so disgusted. That I, I it I I just can't do it. I'm sorry. I I, I apologize no, to our God. listeners. I, I realize that I you know co host a podcast. I, I I shouldn't do this, but you know, I I'm getting you to watch so I don't have to. <laughs> Thanks, James. You, you, I, you, I, I you honestly, get you get the assignment next time. Uh it, it might even be right. worse
0: than you expected, I mean I, you know what yeah, Josh Hawley focused predominantly on uh, child porn cases, uh, ignoring the fact that her sentencing as a district judge this before she was a court appeals judge, was in line with you know the vast majority of other judges. You know the obsession that guys like Hawley and Ken Starr have on sex related issues is is truly strange. And then there was Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton, who tries to pretend he's the smartest guy in the room. He and Judge Jackson both went to Harvard Law School. She graduated with honors. He did not. She was a Supreme Court clerk. He was not. I think maybe a little bit of envy there from that, uh, uh, you know, personality um, challenge, Senator. And finally, finally, your favorite, James, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, the one who begged forgiveness from Tucker Carlson, will remember, was a tough guy playing the racial dog whistle while quoting Martin Luther King. He tried to paint her as soft on crime. Now, interestingly, besides being bogus, the night before the hearings began in Bozeman, Montana, he had failed to check in for his flight, and he got furious and yelled and screamed at a attendant there, a desk person for the airlines. They had to call the police in, and this great tough guy on crime, Ted Cruz, proceeded to berate the cop, too. So, Ted, go back to Cancun.
2: (laughs) I mean, again, none of this is remarkably surprising. No, no. And I, 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 you know, of course, the great airport incident that I've read about in the last 12 <laughs> hours, that Paul Manafort was taken off of a plane in Miami trying to go to Dubai with a revoked passport. <laughs> I mean, that's I don't think there's much ethical. I don't think there's much difference between Paul Manafort. Are you and talking Cruz about you Putin's consultant or
0: indirectly Paul Manafort?
2: The same he, one, yeah, huh? Trump was, campaign manager. He got, like, yes, yeah, same. I mean, it's just too... I can't... I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just can't well, get outraged by these, these people. It's just so evident who they are. And they keep reminding us, and I, I don't know. I just It's like...
0: You are, you are right, James. But the next hearing like this for Politics War Room, you have the watch <laughs> duty. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hey, James, a number of good questions again this week. The first is from Elizabeth in Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. I'd have never been there, but boy, I, Mount Lake Terrace, Washington. It sounds, sounds, like, like, it sounds
2: it's like it's beautiful. I, I want to go there. I, you know, yeah, I want to go, yeah. Let's get a gig in, in Mount Lake <laughs> Terrace, <laughs> Washington.
0: Elizabeth, find a way to invite us out there, will yeah. you, please? She says Do you suspect that, like the previous president, Tucker Carlson is on the take from Russia? Is anyone trying to follow the
2: money here? Why not? You know, I I think that Putin, but Tucker has never would would, would tell you quite honestly he's not a big fan of democracy. It, 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 he, Putin and Tucker's worldview, I doubt, are significantly that far apart. It, now, what's interesting is I, I was reading a piece where these Republicans are, are using ads, just taking right t- taking Tucker's answer language and just putting it on the air. But I'm, I'm really not all that surprised by this. It, 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 other people that know him well, uh, can't tell you their names, but his initials are Paul Bagala, would tell you that, who knows him even better than I do, we, we did a show together. This is not totally out of character for Tucker. This is yeah. not a reversal or anything like that. It's it probably an enhancement of the way that he felt and i i, I there, there's this unbelievable fascination among these ethno nationalist right-wing republicans in the United States for putin and you, you know I, 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 don't, I, I just i don't get it but that's the way they look at the world. I, I I agree, Elizabeth, with
0: James. I don't I don't think he's getting money from the Russians. He's making a fortune from Fox uh, by voicing despicable views. They aren't views you disagree with. They are despicable. They really are. They're racist. They're anti-democratic. But you know, it's who he is. The next question is from Gerald in Nashville, Tennessee. Gerald says, as often as said, hope is not a strategy. As a proud liberal, Gerald wants to know why the Democrats are so smug and lazy to believe these are winning ideas, even as they're proving, proven wrong every election cycle. Well, Gerald, let me slightly quarrel with you. Uh, I'll I'll go back, and I'm I'm stealing this from James. 2018 was a model of what to talk about. It was issues that people cared about. Sure, it may have been a little bit easier because you were criticizing an incumbent administration, but you can replicate those same issues in a slightly different way now and not get caught up with all this kind of crazy cultural stuff of Latinx and defund the police. Uh, So I think... You know, it's seven months away, and time is uh, wasting, as they say, Gerald. But I think if the Democrats want to come up with a message that uh, uh, we have ideas, we've done some good things, there's some more good things that we can do, and do you really want to go back to the old Trump days, they're not out of the, they're not out of the, out of the realm of having a better November than people think.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to agree with you, but— it's you a, it's know, you a, it's it's, a <laughs> it, it should read Tom So I think Tom may be a little more, pes- you know, overly pessimistic. But the, the, the stench that, that these leftists have left on the party is just so hard to get rid of. And it was so idiotic and so stupid and so damaging. And, uh, and there's such a small part of the Democratic coalition I, I, you know, and again, talking this morning to, you know, posters and people, and you know, what p- 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 what they have done. Look, look what they did to Donna Shalala, who's been, you know, was Donna's for you know great experience, you know. They, they killed us in, in in South Florida, and you you can thank the squad and all their supporters for that. Yeah, and to thank them for it. Yeah, you and, can. In the foundations and the universities, mm-hmm. these are just the most politically. I, I, you know, that's the that people, and I'm one of them that think that they like that that they hate the party and that they like doing damage. It makes them feel good. I don't know. Maybe it is. I well, I, I think there's some truth to that. I, I think they, they I think they think that having Republicans in that of Ted in power is good for fundraising. Mm, I really uh, believe that. Uh, uh, really Mike do. in Oak Park,
0: Illinois, listened to our show last week, James. And oh, wow. okay. your idea about using Visa, Amazon, Apple customers list to send information to people about truly what truly is happening uh, in the Ukraine. Let's do it now, Mike says. Do it daily just this evil thwarted. No reason to wait. You know, what will it take to get everybody on board?
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. You know, I have a lot of bad ideas. But, you know, yeah, you can imagine the, the number of contacts that we have, they order from Amazon. They have iPhones. We have all of this, and you know the people that do that are, by nature, going to be a little more fluent, going be a little more educated. And, you know, you, you can start sowing doubt because, you know, as Nick said, this is this is going to be attrition. They're just going to keep shelling, and you know, the, the the more pain that we can bring through these sanctions and through pu- public information campaigns, if you will the more that we're going to be helping Ukraine. This is, this is you know, it, it can be as effective as sending, you know, stingers and javelins.
0: Yep. yep. No, it really can be. And it was, uh, you know, you and Peter last week, I think, really uh, uh, had a terrific uh, idea on this, and it ought to happen now, and there ought to be some pressure on uh, people uh, to do it. Uh, James, I'm going to steal a question from New Orleans. It's from Henry right. down there. And he... he poses this hypothetical. He said, if President Obama nominated Judge Jackson in 2016, would that have enabled Hillary to have won? I assume that Obama nominated the consensus judge because of informal assurances of various Republicans. They would back that nomination. Henry, no. I don't think that if he had nominated Judge Jackson, first of all, uh, I think she had just been a district court judge for a couple years then. Uh, uh, I I, I think the Republicans almost certainly would have gone even more more, uh, crazy on her. Garland was the kind of choice. That you wanted to get through a Republican Senate until Mitch McConnell cheated. And that's what he did. He cheated. Uh, he they're talking a lot about packing the court and Mike Lee and others. And Chuck Grassy say we don't want to increase the size of the court. Well, Mitch McConnell decided for an entire year he would change the size of the court. He did change the size of the court. He refused to have a hearing, so he had an eight-person court for a year because of Mitch McConnell. And that, as much as anything that they accuse Democrats are doing, is what really, really caused, I think, the distrust uh, of the court, the sense that the court is a political institution. That was outrageous what happened back then. And, Henry, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that outrage, but it wouldn't have made any difference if he nominated
2: a Judge I, Jackson type. I, 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 I agree 100%. I think Henry had an insightful question and I think it was a really insightful answer. By the way, Henry, and, and people need to notice: tornadoes in New Orleans in the spring are, are very rare. They, they, they usually don't come to Houston or New Orleans or Mobile. It, it, that's more of a, you know, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Shreveport, Jackson, you know, kind of Birmingham problem. And it, that was a pretty, you'd think, well, one person got killed so you can't say thank God. Of course, it, lands in the Lower ninth law and you know it looks like tornadoes tornadoes seek poor people out. But it was it was pretty frightening. I wasn't there but my wife was there and she sent me some pictures and uh it, this is not a usual thing down there. That yeah. this is we're not in Tornado Alley.
0: James Angie in Georgetown,
2: Texas. I've been Ooh, to several okay.
0: Georgetowns, obviously here in Washington. It's a
2: it's a it's in uh it's in Central Texas. It's is a it? Very, nice. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm, well, she asked a good, qu-
0: a good question about that, that Republican Party in there. She said, I thought Republicans, the party that stood for fewer government rules and laws and the pro-life party. So why are these Texas leaders making more rules and laws that affect the quality of life of children and
2: their parents? <laughs> it's, it's a good question. And I think the answer is they're just cruel people. I think I, 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 we, we sometimes we, we, we overthink this, but uh, there could be other reasons. But, I mean, the, the, the Texas Republicans as a group are just kind of gratuitous. My new hero, by the mm. way, let me give a shout-out, is uh, the governor of Utah. Right? They jumped yeah. past one of these anti-trans things, and a guy, I think his name was like Spencer Cox. And he said, look, there's 75,000 that play high school sports in Utah, four trans, one complete competes as a girl. This, this is a solution looking for a problem. I mean. and, the, and, and they have like these unbelievably high... Su- this is sheer cruelty. I mean, nothing but just cruelty. I mean, these are really complicated human beings with... You know, we should have counseling and, and, and anything that we can. And taking four people out of 75,000 and making them to an issue, and it just it's just cruelty. And they they, they want to hurt. The, yes, I got to give the guy a, a, a real shout out. And his logic was, was totally impeccable. James, I couldn't agree
0: with you more. I I hope I'm right on this. I think the governor of Indiana may have done the same thing. No, he
2: did. I think so. I I, I didn't. Uh, get I, I just happened to see the the, the governor of Utah's reasoning, yeah. and it was like, I you know, I said, well, what about? I said, let the high school athletic association figure it out. Absolutely. That's, not, that's not a question for the legislature, right.
0: or or if it's college, let the NCAA, you know, the Ivy League right. determine that, or University yeah, I mean, of Pennsylvania. Don't, I don't. What know, makes it's, a no difference
2: between a three A and a Two A schools. It's right. 1,000 it's 1,000 800, that's not the legislature's problem. It's not the business that, of
0: politicians. Stay the hell out of it. Right. 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 James, for our next question, I'm actually going to follow one of last week. One of our, our, our terrific listeners last week asked what Trump could do with, I think he's raised about $100 million. Are there any limits on it? So we promised to go to the expert on that, uh, the great Fred Wertheimer who has uh, explained that Trump can basically do anything he wants with that money. He can use it to buy planes, boats, take trips, uh, pay off people from before. But if he uses it for personal use, he has to pay taxes on it. Uh, and we know that Donald Trump sometimes can be a little bit shady on whether he pays taxes. So, But that's the answer for last week. So, Fred Wertheimer, thank you.
2: He's going to use it for personal use. I can promise you that. <laughs> Whether yeah, pays taxes or not, I don't know. Our final question is from Eric in Westlake
0: Village, California, who asked a good question. Will the Ukraine lessen the impact of the January 6th committee and its findings and reports? It was a threat to our democracy being broadcast all over, but the war in Ukraine is a global threat and it commands
2: all of our attention now. That's a very good question. And it's a question worth pondering. I... I, I I, I don't know. I, I, it certainly dominates everything, but you know, we still hear about inflation. But of course, people experience inflation every time right. they turn around. Uh, but that, that's a good question. I, I think I would defer to you. You know, understand this a little better, than I do. I but, really don't, James. Because I agree. It's a good question.
0: And yeah. first of all, I guess it depends on what the situation is going to be like in Ukraine in another month or two. It depends on, you right. know, how dramatic the uh, the hearings, the findings. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be some bad stuff that the committee comes up with. Uh,
2: so it's a it's a really good question. And yeah, and it what, is. And if I was Putin, is going to use a tactical nuclear weapon, I'd probably use it the day this came out. Yeah, can yeah. carry that story pretty easily. Couldn't. Yeah,
0: he he don't want to hurt his friend Trump. That's for sure. Right. Uh, all right. Well, keep those. Please keep oh, those great, questions coming great in. Great questions. I mean, you, questions. your your Nine questions out there are so good. And when we don't know the answer, which sometimes
2: happens, as it did last week, I promise we'll get to somebody who does. So please yeah. keep it right. coming. Thank some, you. Some some of our some of our listeners can give us the answer I bet you they know it as much as anybody else.
0: Hey James, you know uh, Kamala Harris has not exactly had a distinguished run as vice president. But one criticism last week was beyond dirty. She was criticized for being to being ugly to Ukrainian refugees in Poland. First, it was a lie. But the real the real outrage was the charge was made by Stephen Miller, the hate mongering Trump immigration guru, who delighted in separating children from their families. Miller talking about someone being insensitive about refugees, of course, is like Putin complaining about repression. Miller is a destructive immigration basher. He's now an advisor to Pennsylvania Republican Senate candidate David McCormick. Ms. McCormick, are you
2: simpatico with Miller on this issue? Well, uh, one good reason to pull against Duke, and probably a lot, is that Stephen Miller's a Duke grad, I think. Oh, I I won't tell my wife. I don't don't, don't want (laughs) to slander Duke without saying, but I I think that Will Leach, uh, who's on New York Magazine, had a good funny piece about who to pull for in the NCAA tunnel. You know, Bob Novak used to always pull for the team that was closest to his political ideology.
0: So it didn't matter. You know, if Alabama played uh, Michigan, he always was going
2: to cheer for Alabama. I never, I never pull fellow shoes. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. you had Novak. Duke <laughs> has Stephen yeah. Miller. You had Novak. Right. Pulling right. for
2: you. Thank you. Know, I got it. <laughs> it ain't, it ain't never, uh, about rage The outrage is the government of the state of Israel. All right, now they refused to sell this very effective spyware to Ukraine because they didn't want to offend the Russians. All right. First of all, Putin today is talking about rootless cosmopolitans. That's right out of the Stalin anti-Semitic playbook. And by the way, what's Russia ever done for Israel? You know, I actually think that the United States was very, very, very influential in the of the state of Israel. I think Harry Truman did it at, at great risk. Yep. I think the Iron Dome has protected them to the nth degree. And I, I talked to uh, our friend Jim Gersing before I did this, and he said, actually, the people of Israel definitely don't like this decision. I, I, you know, at some, at some point, and uh, they understand, they say, well, we got, you know, the, the, the Russians in Syria, and we got a lot, of, a lot of things to navigate, and it's complicated. You know what? That's just not sufficient answer. That's just not a sufficient answer. And I know there's a lot of people that listen to this show, that, am that, I, that, that, you know, really care about Israel, really like the Israeli people. But but I, I think this is a spineless act by this government. And, 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 you know, again, Putin is engaging in this anti-Semitic talk. And to me, it's, it's just an outrage. Couldn't agree with you more, James. I guess I would have expected of Netanyahu,
0: I'm surprised by Bennett, And uh, nobody knows the situation better than Jim Gerstein.
2: Right. And and there's no, I mean, all you can say about Bennett is he's not Netanyahu. But that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know why our ambassador, if I was, you know, Blanket, I'd call the Israeli ambassador into my office.
0: Yeah, and our ambassador Mm -hmm. over there, Tom
2: Nides, ought to be raising hell with him. Absolutely, you know. absolutely and this apparently this stuff is really effective I mean you can imagine it very you know advanced well he went to visit that, Putin uh, in Moscow which I thought okay if you know that's okay fine. Yeah, maybe on that. that back
0: door but, but, yeah, absolutely but but to, to continue to play footsie with the Russians is just you know no. inexcusable it really is nope. and, and and you know it really is the antithesis of everything Israel uh, is supposed to stand for Right. Uh, so, uh, I agree. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, the Democracy in Danger podcast, Raycon, and Blinkist in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. So to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.